Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us through his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin offered insight into how he became a prosecutor. In this episode, he explains how he became involved in the Durst case and the pivotal role that the filmmakers of the HBO documentary The Jinx played in that involvement. That's all coming up right after the break. 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. couple of quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. If there are moments when the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit parts of the trial that John Lewin is talking about, I will periodically identify episodes from jury duty that cover sections of the case that Lewin references. And now, here is my conversation with Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney and lead prosecutor in the trial of Robert Durst, John Lewin. John Lewin, thank you for joining us today. Tell me, John, how did you get involved in the case of the killing of Susan Berman? Well, so the way I got involved is that I had previously been made aware of this case. I started doing cold cases in maybe 96 or 97, starting in basically 1998. I think I did one non-cold case trial after 98, but everything after 98, I was a special trial deputy in Torrance, and they let me focus in on cold cases. And so uh, that's what I was doing. In 2000 or 2001, they formally set up a cold case unit. The cold case unit was supposed to be DNA-related, and I wasn't really a big DNA fan. Not that DNA is wonderful. What I mean is, is the cases that I like are non-forensic cases. I like relational cases. I like cases where you have a lot of motive and you're trying to figure out what evidence you can find to support it versus DNA cases, which oftentimes are low motive, high evidence cases. So you find a victim in the trunk of a car or, you know, in an alley and he's got DNA and you find three other individuals who have DNA from the same offender, nobody knows each other. So it's a very strong evidentiary case, you know, four dead women, all with defendant's DNA in it, but there's no relationship. I've always found those cases less interesting. So I got involved doing cold cases. And in 2004, they transferred me in cold cases to our major crimes division, where I still am today. So in maybe 2000, I don't know, six, something like that, I was approached by Paul Coulter, 
who was the original I.O. on Susan's case. And Paul wanted me to look at this case. And at the time, I was told by my boss, hey, you're not allowed to look at this case. We've already looked at it. There's not enough there. We don't want you looking at it. And the reason that my boss did that, Pat Dixon, a great guy who I worked for for many years, was that Pat knew that if I ended up looking at a case and I kind of got my claws into it, that I was very difficult to get off of the case. So he basically ordered me. He said, hey, we've looked at it. And our assistant head deputy at the time, a guy named John Monaghan, one of the best prosecutors we ever had in the office, a phenomenal trial lawyer. Monaghan had looked at it. I respected John very much. And John said it wasn't there. So I knew some of the facts, and I knew that the problem was that there were some issues with the original investigation, stuff that had not been done, that had been missed, and so we were not able to put it together. So I did something very unusual. I listened to what I was told, and I didn't pursue the case. So fast forward to the end of 2012. I don't know anything about this case. I don't know what's going on with it. But I'm contacted by George Camlian from RHD. George, I worked on other cases with. George called me because I find out about exhuming Susan Berman's body. So he calls me, and I remember the case. He tells me, and he wants to exhume her body. And I tell him, well, wait, wasn't she shot in the back of the head? Yeah. George, you don't want to exhume the body. If you do that, there is no reason to believe that you're going to get any DNA from an offender, from someone who was executed from a Lewin said that he told Robbery Homicide Division's Shamlian that there is no reason to believe you're going to get any DNA from an offender, from someone who had shot Susan from behind. But if you exhume the body and you collect evidence, what you're likely to get are what we call artifacts, meaning you're going to get some DNA, but that DNA is going to have nothing to do with your crime. It might be from an analyst who touched her. It might be from the mortuary. It could be from anyone. And the problem is, is once you do it, the defense is going to argue, aha, that's from your killer. So you don't do DNA testing on something unless you're very confident that the DNA you're going to recover is related to your crime. So he listened. At the time, what had happened was he had been contacted by Eric Perry. Eric Perry was an FBI agent in New York. Eric had been contacted by Douglas Durst, head of security, who was a senior person who had retired from the FBI, now heading Durst Security. And he contacted Eric basically for a threat assessment because they were concerned that Bob Durst was stalking and planning to hurt Douglas Durst and members of the Durst family. And this had been a result, if you go back, if you remember, during the April 2012 interviews, the last one with Jarecki and Smirling, they had taken a walk near the Durst family houses and business, and it had really freaked out the Durst family. And then Bob had had some subsequent con- contacts. There, ended, there ends up being restraining orders after all this, and that will eventually form the basis for the trespassing charge that Bob will be charged with in New York, where he was acquitted in, you know, 2014, if I remember. You can find coverage of Douglas Durst's trial testimony about the incident where his brother stalked him, as well as information about the 2014 trial that ensued in Jury Duty Season 2, Episode 9. So they had contacted Eric, and Eric starts looking at the case, and he realizes, well, Bob Durst is a pretty bad guy. Nothing he can do involving the Galveston case. He's already been acquitted. The New York case 
seemed to have been open, reopened, and that seemed like a dead end. Westchester had, the DA's office had never defeated. So he looks and he says, aha, Los Angeles, that's the one. So Eric contacts LAPD Robbery Homicide Division. Paul Coleman has just retired, and Eric talks to George. Now, around the same time, Eric Perry had also been contacted by the, or had been made aware, I don't know if Eric contacted them or he contacted Eric, but Jurecki and Sperling had contacted Eric as well, wanting to get information from him. Here, Lewin refers to Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the producers of All Good Things, the fictional film about the Durst saga, who, at the time, were preparing the documentary series that would become The Jinx. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com In the next part of our conversation, John Lewin gives background on why investigators should think twice before taking actions to analyze physical evidence, like, for example, testing a piece of evidence for DNA or ordering the exhumation of a body. So I get contacted and I explain to George, hey, we don't want to exhume this body. This is just going to come up with negative evidence. It's really important when you're doing a case. It's not just what the evidence shows. It's also what evidence you choose to look at. So as an example, I prosecuted a case years ago, horrible case of two elderly people who were murdered inside their home. There was a cigarette butt that had been found outside the house in their driveway. Now, the driveway had a gate, and this was on the other side of the gate, meaning on the house side of the gate, not really accessible from the street. But there was nothing about this cigarette butt that was associated with our crime, other than we knew that our victims didn't smoke. And, you know, could someone have killed them and thrown this outside? Sure. It could also have been tossed over the fence by someone just walking by. So that cigarette butt, I made the tactical decision not to have it tested. And the reason was very simple. If I test it and it turns out that it's not the defendant's DNA, then he's going to argue that's the true killer. And if his lawyer's smart, when I say, well, no, it's not, what they're going to say is, well, wait a minute, why did it get tested? Well, it got tested because the DA or the detective asked that it be tested. That's what the lab will say. So the defense attorney will argue, well, listen, they thought that that was a valuable item of test to test until the results came back differently than what they thought. So what I do in cases like that is I don't test it. I wait. Because here's what I know. If the defendant knows it's not his cigarette fire. He will end up testing the, the, the cigarette fire. He will file an order to have it tested. I will then say, okay, pursuant to the defendant's request, we will test the item. But now when my expert is on the stand, instead of having a test by, yep, we tested it because the prosecutor said we want to test it, or the detectives said want to test it, they're going to say, well, listen, why did we test it? Well, we didn't think it was connected to the crime scene, Mr. Defense Attorney, but we tested it because you asked it if you tested it. So 
that is why you have to be really careful on not just what the results of testing is, but what testing you ask for. Lewin continues his explanation of his recommendation to Robbery Homicide Division Detective George Shamlian that the LAPD should not exhume Susan Berman's body in their efforts to reopen the investigation into her murder. So I don't want to have Susan Berman exhumed, you know, have her body, you know, looked over for DNA. Because if we find foreign DNA, the defense can argue that's your killer. And the only reason the prosecutor is now running away from it is it's not the results he wants. So I convinced George, no, no, no body exhumation. And then very shortly after that, Eric Perry is reaching out to me because he's in contact with Jarecki and Smurling. And they want to speak to me. They have some information, et cetera. Now, it turns out I will later discover that Andrew Jarecki had hired a woman named Martha Clark. Martha Clark had prosecuted the OJ case. I didn't know Martha. I joined the office in 94, and the OJ trial was 95. Martha was actually in major crime. She left the office, and I think, you know, after OJ, I've never met her. But we have a lot of detective friends in common. So apparently, Andrew reached out to her to find out, hey, who in your office would I want to take this cold case involving Susan to? Because remember, Andrew at this time has the Sarab note. In mentioning the Sarab note, Lewin refers to the letter and envelope from Robert Durst, found among Susan Berman's possession by Sarab Kaufman. The handwriting on those items matched the handwriting and a key misspelling of the so-called cadaver note, alerting the Beverly Hills police to the address of Susan Berman's cadaver. You know, he has all the videos. So Andrew knows he's got very incriminating evidence, but he's very skeptical of law enforcement. He's very skeptical of law enforcement because of his experience on the Friedman case with Nassau County, where he felt like there were ethical issues with the way that case was handled. Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling previously made a film called Capturing the Freedmans, which, among other things, explored the questionable tactics employed by law enforcement to prosecute and convict a young man for sexual abuse in Nassau County, New York. So, you know, Andrew was very skeptical of prosecutors. So Mark ends up telling him, yeah, you know, the person, she reaches out to a mutual friend of ours, a retired homicide detective, Rick Jackson, and Rick ends up giving her my name. You know, I don't know if she knew who I was at that point or not, but uh, she ends up giving that information to Jarecki. And so now Jarecki wants to talk to me. So I'm contacted by Eric Perry, told that Jarecki and Curly want to talk to me, and I say, sure. So within that very short period of time, the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, I get a call from Jarecki and Smerlin. I did the call with Eric Perry because George didn't know them. It was Eric was functioning as the law enforcement person at this point in time with directly Smerling. And they tell me that they've got some evidence on the case. They won't tell me what it is. And during that first call, they actually mentioned the Ed Wright situation. Two quick things. Can you tell me when you got your first call from Eric Perry and then just briefly explain the Ed Wright situation? Sure. So Eric Perry originally called me right around the beginning of 2013. And it would have been within a couple of weeks, maybe even days, between my first conversation with George about the case and my first conversation with Eric. Because Eric was talking to George about exhuming the body. And when that happened, George mentioned who I was to Eric. Also, Eric is talking directly to Merlin. Since Eric wants to speak to me, so George gives him my info, and I end up talking to Eric. 
shortly thereafter, I end up talking to Jarecki and Smirling. When I end up talking to Jarecki and Smirling with Eric on the phone, if I remember, they end up calling me uh, with Eric. I have Eric on the line. We end up talking, and they end up telling me that they've got evidence in the case. They're telling me what's going on. I tell them very quickly, which I always do, and listen, I will listen to whatever you have to say. Absolutely. But just so you know, this is a one-way street. You give me information, I don't give you any information. And that was kind of a, that was a recurring theme in this case. And not something that they were particularly happy about, because they wanted to get information from me as well. So they end up telling me about a little bit of what they have. They don't go into specifics, but one of the specifics they go into is they say, hey, listen, we have these reports from an investigator that Bob's lawyer hired in 1982, named Ed Wright. And I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean you have those? How do you have those? And I can't remember if during that conversation they explained to me how they had them, but I ended up telling them immediately, don't say another word about it. Don't mention anything about Ed Wright. Don't send me anything about Ed Wright. Don't tell me what Ed Wright said. Now, it will turn out that the reason they have these statements from Ed Wright, and Ed Wright was a private investigator hired by Bob's lawyer, Anthony Scapetta, when Kathy disappeared. Ed Wright was a retired NYPD detective, very well respected. He then worked for the state on their uh, mobster commission. He was apparently a very good detective. He was much better than the detectives that were working on Kathy's disappearance. So what Ed Wright was assigned to do, apparently, was to investigate the crime and try to figure out what happened to Kathy. That involved him interviewing Bob Durst, apparently a number of times. Ed Wright apparently, and I've still never seen the report, but Ed Wright apparently was able to catch Bob in a bunch of lies. Now, that was important then. It ended up not really mattering as time went by because Bob would end up admitting all the lies that he had told about Kathy. But this was very important evidence at that time, and I told him, hey, I can't see this. Don't send me anything, et cetera. So that was my first contact with Drecky and Smurley through Eric Perry, so it's kind of interesting how all of this, they're like concentric circles that overlap. Eric Perry is contacting me through George, you know, and also through Drecky and Smurley. Drecky and Smurley are contacting me through Eric Perry, but also through Marcia Clark. You know, it's just a lot of kind of interesting how does this case arrive at my doorstep. So that's what happens. Tell me about your first substantive conversations with Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smurling. What I can tell you is that they were interested. They knew what they had, and they wanted this case prosecuted. They wanted it prosecuted for two reasons. Number one, they had become, with the information they knew, they had come to believe that absolutely Bob Durst had killed three people. And number two, they wanted an ending to their, what at that time was going to be a movie. So they come to me, and very shortly after that, they end up showing me the interviews with Bob. They end up showing me the serum notes. Andrew and Mark very quickly liked and trusted them. They had had a bad experience with law enforcement before, but we hit it off, and they thought that, you know, I wasn't just yanking their chain, that I was very dedicated to going after this case. But I was very honest with them. I told them from the start, hey, listen, typically here's what happens. My cases, I do pre-filing investigation anywhere from three to ten years. And you can literally see, you know, they're like, well, they don't want to hear that. Well, what can be done to speed it up? You know, we've already done X, Y, Z. Well, the problem is that 
I can't just take your word for this is what you have. So I need to get all of your interviews with Bob. I need to get all your interviews with these other witnesses, and I need to go through them. You know, and that's a long process, you know, because I have to figure out what do you have in the end, what do you have on this that demonstrates you did it. So they end up asking about my process. I explain to them that what happens is that I work on these cases, and I eventually build a filing PowerPoint. When I say build, I'm working with somebody else like Ethan almost always. Ethan is Deputy DA Ethan Milius, who handled and curated the massive amount of audiovisual evidence used by the Durst prosecution team. Ethan is also the son of legendary filmmaker John Milius. I can't make PowerPoint. I think I'm pretty good at designing them and figuring out what I want in them and figuring out I want this slide to do this, but actually building them, I can't do it to this day. So I tell them, this is what I do. Then I will do a filing presentation, and they end up saying, well, can we see one of those? I said, sure. So I give them a filing presentation for a case that's already final. It's a nobody spousal-like casting, and I give it to them. So they say to me, hey, listen, if what if we built you did the same thing? I said, listen, man, I would certainly look at anything you have. That would be helpful. So if you're telling me, this is, if they're saying, hey, if you're saying you need to know what is all the evidence that you have and where does it come from, you know, we've been doing all this. We can end up building a PowerPoint, and that'll show you what your evidence is. So I said, great. So that's what they did. This was a combined effort because I was going through. I had now transcripts of the witnesses. I didn't have the videos, but I had the transcripts. And I would tell them, hey, I need you to pull this clip and put it in the PowerPoint. So they gave us a PowerPoint, which then we heavily modified. So that was my exposure to Mark and Andrew. Tell me about getting to the point where you felt you could file charges against Bob Durst. Well, I always knew. The question for me was not whether I was going to file charges against it, but I was going to, I don't decide whether charges are going to be filed. I make a recommendation. My case is historically when Steve was the DA and when Jackie was the DA. The Steve and Jackie to whom Lewin refers are Stephen Cooley and Jackie Lacey, former Los Angeles district attorneys. They had to go all the way up to the top because they tend to be difficult circumstantial cases. And certain people in the office, their views were, well, why are we going to file a high, a case that will turn out to be high publicity that nobody knows anything about right now? So we might not win. So I've always had to fight that battle. So I knew that I wanted to file it from day one. If I had nothing else, as long as what they were telling me about the case was true and I could corroborate it, I had enough. But I also wanted to make sure that I found all the evidence that was out there. So we start working on the case. George and I primarily at the beginning. Sure. Were you strategic in thinking about when you would recommend to your bosses to file charges? So what I wanted to do was, this is what I know from cold cases. So I had an advantage over probably anybody else out there, prosecutors, defense attorneys, et cetera. My career at that point in the last 15 plus years had been working exclusively on complex circumstantial cold case. I did case after case after case. So, oh, this one was a big one. I was used to doing it. This is what I do. I guarantee you, DeGaron, Chesnoff, they've not had a case like this before. Chip, this was unusual for them. They're not used to doing complex circumstantial cases where, you know, there's not eyewitnesses, physical evidence, etc. So I knew from my experience what it takes to be successful 
And that means that when you're working on a cold case, before you file it, you better have done everything that you can do because there's no excuse on a cold case for filing it when you're not ready. Now, that being said, there are exceptions to that. And the exception would be that I knew and believed from the start that their project was going to generate a lot of publicity. My view was not shared by people higher up in my administration. They didn't think it was going to be as serious a case as I did. And I wanted help. I wasn't able to get the help I wanted until the case was filed, until they arrested them. So leading up to it, I'm trying to do as much work as I can. And I had a problem. It was a big problem. I want to investigate Kathy, Morris, and Susan. But Bob is out of custody. Bob's lawyers are very tied into Galveston. If I end up sniffing this out and they find out that I'm looking at it, my concern was Bob is going to take off for Cuba, and we're not going to see him. So it was very difficult trying to figure out how I can investigate this. I used New York City police to do some of the early stuff because I knew Bob and the defense were not afraid of Kathy's case. Kathy's case periodically got, you know, brought up for investigation, and they didn't think anything was going to happen on it. But I knew Bob was worried about Susan. I didn't want him to know we were looking at it. And it turned out he never knew. The defense never knew. They didn't have any idea until he got arrested. So that was my plan. Once they ended up finalizing their deal for the case, and I had seen the uh, original cuts of it, my position was, oh, my God, this thing is going to be huge. And my concern was that if the jinx airs and we haven't filed the case, Bob's going to take off for Cuba, and all of the damaging evidence is going to be put on a loop on TV, and my office is going to look incompetent. Well, how could you not file it when you had XYZ? So I came to the decision that after Episode 5 that I wanted to file the case. I'm not going to get into the internal deliberations in my office, but the decision was made not to file the case. But unbeknownst to me, there was communication to LAPD. LAPD, knowing we weren't going to file the case, took off to Houston, tried to find Bob. He wasn't there. Took off to New Orleans. The FBI ended up locating him, and they arrested him. So I got a call on Saturday, March 14th, from my assistant DA at the time, who he had wanted the case to be filed. He had pushed for it to be filed, but, you know, the decision was made to not file it. For clarification, the assistant DA was high in the chain of command in the district attorney's office. He supported John Lowen's desire to file charges against Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. However, the district attorney at the time decided on a Thursday that there was not enough to file the case. The LAPD detectives at the time were frustrated by this decision and immediately worked with the FBI to find Durst. They quickly discovered that Durst had fled from his residence in Houston, Texas, to a hotel in New Orleans, Louisiana. On the Saturday of that same week, Durst was arrested in New Orleans on gun and drug charges, and with the breaking news of that arrest, Lewin's boss called him and said that the DA had reversed her decision and Lewin now had the go-ahead to file murder charges against Robert Durst. So he now calls me and he says, okay, you got what you want, you better win. And my response to him was, well, then you better start giving me the resources I've been asking for, because you guys haven't done it. I'll work eight days a week, but I'm not doing a suicide mission, and this guy has tens of millions of dollars, and this is going to be an extremely high-profile case. I need the help I've been asking for. And he says, what do you need? Lewin knew he wanted the audiovisually savvy DA, Ethan Milius, on his team. I said, well, for starters, I need uh, Ethan Milius, who they had turned me down on before, and they gave me my team that I had 
So once the case was filed, I got all the support I needed from the office. And I also got something that is very unusual. They completely left me alone. There wasn't one bit of interference on the case of you need to do this, you need to do that. Me and my team, and ultimately me, made every tactical decision in that case. And, you know, that's hard for upper administration because they understand it's a big case. And generally speaking, on these big cases, behind the scenes, the administration's running the show. They didn't on this case, and that's to their credit. So that's what happened. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as we discuss John Lewin's dramatic 2015 jailhouse interview with Robert Durst, how it came together, and how he prepared for it. One last note before we conclude. John Lewin reached out to us after we published yesterday's episode to correct two misstatements that he made. Law school, of course, was three years of study for him, not four years. And he started in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office in August of 1994, not in August of 1993. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this case on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.